This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 40. Jeremiah chapter 40. We're looking tonight at uh, chapter 40 verse 7 through chapter 41 verse 18. Hear the Word of God. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, the Nehophathite, Jezaniah, the son of the Machathite, they and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and to their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land. Serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Balas, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Kariah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Please, let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life, so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Kariah, You shall not do this thing. For you're speaking falsely of Ishmael. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. 
On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, <clears throat> 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. When they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them, cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was the large cistern that King Asa had made for defense against Basha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. When all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Kariah. But Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Geruth Chimham near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. Because Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you this evening and uh, come to your scriptures, Lord, to your word, and pray that as we uh, study this passage, that your spirit would give us light, and that in your light we would see light. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. From 1919 until 1933, Germany was under the rule of the Weimar Republic. Ironically, never known by that name while it existed. They were still known as the Deutsches Reich, the German Reich. Uh, the Weimar Republic was a government that had the daunting task of bringing order out of the chaos and the wreckage that Germany was after the end of World War I. The Weimar Republic, named for the city in which it was uh, centered, Weimar, Germany, uh, was almost, it seemed, doomed from the start. One thing, Germany was under the Treaty of Versailles that ended the war, a treaty that was quite punitive toward Germany, uh, because of the role it had played in World War I uh, that almost doomed Germany from the start. And 
uh, just extended the difficulties and paved the way for Hitler to come to power. Uh, because of all of that, too, the wreckage uh, after the war, the economy was, you could imagine, was in shambles. Uh, unemployment was rife. Hyperinflation was the rule of the day as the government tried to print money to meet its, did print lots of money to meet its uh, obligation. Uh, at one point, one dollar was worth about four trillion uh, of the, uh, the the marks in in Germany. So bad was the hyperinflation with the printing of money. Also, there were uh, even even the moderates weren't happy with the Weimar Republic. The extremists were trying to topple it, and all in all, it was an unstable situation that ended in 1933, earlier in that year, when uh, Hitler and his uh, Nazis took over Germany and restored order and had the promise of restoring national pride. Hitler, of course, was appearing on the scene as early as the uh, early 20s, uh, but finally came to power for full with the Nazis in 1933. And once again, Germany was, shall we say, well-ordered, and national pride was on the rise. Unfortunately, so was their military but the Weimar Republic uh, was a an effort to bring order out of chaos. And I couldn't help but think about that situation in Germany as we read the text here today. Some some considerable similarities. Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, as it was known, is gone. Uh, the Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem. They've hauled off the leadership. They've hauled off many of the leaders and nobles. Others have fled. They have allowed some of the poor and few people to remain in the land. But in effect, uh, it was over. It was gone. And many of the cities were rubble uh, because of the Babylonians. Certainly Jerusalem was, was badly, badly damaged because of the siege and the warfare that had taken place. And the Babylonians, the conquerors, had appointed a governor to begin to try to bring order out of the chaos, out of the wreckage that was Jerusalem. Uh, they wanted to see things begin again. They wanted the people there to begin to work the land. Uh, as it says in verse 6, um, the people were there who were left in the land. Part of the uh, purpose was to uh, try to get agriculture going again, business going again. Uh, and Babylon had a, had a, a, another motive in all of this, and that was to keep there from being a, a void there, a vacancy into which Egypt might move. They wanted to keep that place occupied and keep Egypt at bay. Well, as we read this passage and uh, read of this chaotic and unstable situation, it's worth noting that there's someone missing here. There's no mention of God. Well, there's one. There's a reference to the temple of the Lord. But there's no word from the Lord. There's no indication of a message from God. There's no uh, description of the arm of the Lord at work here. And that absence is rather striking, especially since in the passage just before this, in chapter 39 and 40, 39, 15, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Verse, chapter 40, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord uh, and so on, uh, then we have this silence. And it almost seems as though God is absent. Jerusalem has fallen. Things are a wreck. 
and this chaos seems to reign supreme. Sometimes we may feel that way. You may look around and just think, what is going on? Where is God? Why doesn't he do something? Why does this happen? Has he just abandoned his people? Of course, theologically, you know the answer is no. God is still there. And we know that's true here. But he doesn't speak. He doesn't act even as these atrocities are taking place. So let's look at this passage and just work our way through it um, and and see what we can learn from it. First of all, we do have this new beginning in in verses 7 through 12, chapter 40, verse 7. We read that uh, we read of Gedaliah's appointment in the the passage just previous. Uh, In fact, uh, Jeremiah returns in verse 5, return to Gedaliah. Uh, he's given that option, and that is, in fact, what he does. He returns to Gedaliah there in Mizpah and lives among the people who were left there in the land to work it, to occupy it. And so word gets out that this governor has been appointed. People wondering what's going to happen next. Well, they learn that Gedaliah has been appointed governor there, and uh, those who were in the land are committed to him. The men, women, children, those of the poorest of the land had not been taken away. And as people started to hear, they began to return. Verse uh, verse 8, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and some of these uh, are named. Ishmael, Johanan, some others who were named there, and they returned. And Gedaliah, in verse 9, uh, essentially repeats Jeremiah's message. Don't be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Which Jeremiah was saying that before the Babylonians had taken Jerusalem. Well, now afterward... Uh, Gedaliah, having been appointed governor, says, look, here's what we need to do. You know, things have changed. We're under the power of Babylon now. And uh, don't be afraid to serve them. Don't be afraid to live here. Uh, serve the king. It will be well with you. Verse 10, he says, as for me, I'll live in Mizpah. I'll represent you. Uh, literally, I'll stand before the Chaldeans for you, be their representative. Uh, and try to uh, maintain good relationships with their conquerors. Uh, but as for you, he says, gather wine and summer fruits and oil, store them, live in the cities. Uh, verse 11 indicates others, all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and other lands, those who had fled, those who had left the city uh, before the Babylonians arrived and besieged or maybe who had been able to escape uh, from the siege and get out of the city and ran to other places, fled to other places. And they heard that uh, there was a a remnant there and there was a governor. Uh, Many of them, verse 12, begin to return. These other Judeans begin to return from the places where they'd been driven, came back to their home, to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah. They gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance, which is a little surprising given the devastation of the land. Uh, but it's also a little bit ominous because this is no doubt um, fruit of previous planting, previous harvests. Uh, the problem is that uh, the land is a mess, that the, the regular cycles of agriculture had not been taking place because of the occupation of the Babylonians and the siege. So um, while they do have some provisions here, there's some concern for the future. But all in all, this is a somewhat optimistic scenario. We read this and think, well... Yeah, they've, they've been through an awful time, but the Lord is providing, uh, order is being restored, people are beginning to come back, and it looks like things might be able to, um, if not, if not prosper, at least continue. 
until better days. And so we have this new beginning. A governor is appointed, people begin to return, return, and things are looking up. But then it takes sort of an ominous twist. Uh, with a new beginning, then we have an unheeded warning. Just as things are starting to seem kind of positive, we get this bad news. Verse 13. Now Johanan, the son of Cariah, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to get a lie at Mizpah, and they have a disturbing message. Not everybody who's returning back is doing so with goodwill. You know, he says in verse 14, that Balas, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life. This guy's a hired gun. He's an assassin, and he's after you. Well, Gedaliah wouldn't have anything to do with that. And finally, Johanna says, look, let me just go take him out. Just quietly snuff him out. Nobody needs to know. Because why should you, the governor of the land, die at his hand? Let's go take care of this quietly and everything will be good. And again, notice Gedaliah, verse 16. You shall not do this thing. You're speaking falsely of Ishmael. Now, they deliver this warning. You know, can't say he wasn't warned. Uh, the, the, his his his, uh, his secret service, they were on. They, they were on the ball. They, they caught this. They knew that something was up. They knew this guy was uh, under the employ of the Ammonites, and they caught him. You know, the antivirus worked. They gave him fair warning. And his reaction is just, no, you, 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 Ishmael wouldn't do that. Ishmael's a good guy. You're speaking falsely of Ishmael. A fatal naivete. Gedaliah was a good man. He was trying to, to make things work. But he also apparently had something of a naive streak, a simple streak. Uh, the, this credulity, uh, even a gullibility, not to recognize the dangerous time in which he lived. This was a very unstable time, despite his efforts to stabilize things. Uh, he needed to recognize, and he didn't recognize, that there were enemies all about. This is not unique. There are people, there are people in positions of power who are very naive about things. I was driving home, actually from the service this morning. Uh, I just caught the tail end of Bob Edwards' weekend on um, public radio. Sometimes it's interesting, sometimes some interesting interviews. But they sometimes at the end have a section called This I Believe, uh, which is an essay people can write in, basically giving their view of things. And I was struck by the one today by Alexander Forbes, who's retired from uh, as a professor of physiology at Harvard, graduate of Harvard Medical School in 1910, did research on the human nervous system, obviously pretty high-watt bulb. But this is what he said. This was part of his, what, what is already read on the air, and I went to the website, which is why I have the words here. This is what he said. Listen to this. Viewing the pageant of the universe in its entirety and contemplating man's rise from the protozoan to his highest spiritual stature, his words, I find in the creative force that did all this something we can worship with all the reference that is in us. Oh, dear creative force, we bow before you. Those were my words. In the struggle for survival through the ages, cruel competition has been stressed as a necessary element. 
Yet in spite of this, many animals lower in the scale than man have found that cooperation works better than conflict and actually promotes survival. How much more does this apply to civilized man? I believe that when neighbor countries learn that friendly trade is better than warfare, they will live better. When management and labor learn that their common aim production, common aim, that is production, is better served by teamwork than quarrels and strikes, they will fare better physically and spiritually. I could have told you that. And it's true. And it's also idealism at its most naive. Can't we all just get along? Well, you can until one nation sends its tanks across the border of another nation and wants to take the nation. It does not reckon with the reality that there is evil in the world and there is evil in our hearts. Yes, we want to cooperate. Yes, we want friendly trade and all of those good things. Uh, But the fact is, we must always reckon in this fallen world with the reality and the threat of evil. There are people who will be our enemies no matter how nice we are to them. There are nations who will be our enemies no matter how nice we are to them. No matter how much we disarm, no matter how much we do this or that, we have to reckon with the reality of evil in the world. Gedaliah failed to make that reckoning. Gedaliah may have been a good man, but at best he was naive, and at worst he was a fool, and those are not the people you need running your nation. Yet there he was. You know, God's people are called to be, like Gedaliah, called to be good, but we're not called to be naive. You know, Jesus put it this way. He said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's dangerous out there. So, he said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Not just innocent as doves going out to the slaughter. And not just wise as serpents, just shrewd and cunning to get whatever we can out of people. But both the shrewdness of a serpent, the innocence of a dove. Gedaliah had only the latter. And he paid dearly for it. And what was left of Judah paid dearly. For it, Because in the next section, we see evil unleashed. Three events that take place that uh, just are, are vicious in, in their evil. First of all, his assassination in verses 1 through 3. Uh, we read that uh, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and uh, ten of his men came and they're eating with Gedaliah. And as they eat, they rose up and they strike down Gedaliah, killed him whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land, which is repeated at the end of this passage. Uh, That's a significant statement. And he also struck down all the Judeans who were with him there at Mizpah, probably referring to his fellow officers or fellow leaders. And the Chaldean soldiers happened to be there. They took down the Babylonian bodyguard, ten men. They obviously carefully planned this attack once they were in, and the, 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 uh, the evil of it is emphasized by the fact that we're eating together. And they rise up, these ten men, in what apparently was a carefully coordinated plan, take out the Babylonian guard, the, the, the governor, and his officials with him. And then, not only that, but this mass murder. Well, let's back up just a second. Why would he do this? Well, we've already learned he's, uh, he's sent by the Ammonites. The Ammonites uh, didn't have, it, uh, have much use for Judah, but they really didn't like the Babylonians. And if they saw that, uh, that this was continuing under Babylon, they may have been motivated to want to destroy it. 
but also for Ishmael personally. Uh, we read in verse 1 of 41 that he was of royal blood. Uh, he may not have liked this. He may still be personally at war with Babylon and happy to do anything he can to wreck Babylon's efforts to do anything anywhere. It's also possible that being of royal blood, of some relationship to the, uh, the monarchy there in Judah, that he was irked that he wasn't appointed governor. He was passed over in favor of this upstart Gedaliah. So any number of motivations could have been at play here. Well, then we read in verse 4, the day after that assassination, before word had gotten out what had happened, there were 80 men who come from Shechem, Shiloh, Samaria, pilgrims, and they're coming to offer grain incense, uh, grain offerings and incense there in the temple of the Lord. They're on their way, and Ishmael disguises himself sort of as one of them. He comes out weeping, meets them, says, come in to Gedaliah. Well, they come in. And he and his men slaughter the 80 of them. Must have been some sort of ambush for 10 men to take out 80. Uh, and yet they do that. And they stuff all their bodies in a cistern. They drop them down in a cistern that had been built there. Uh, except for 10 men who said, well, don't put us to death. Look, we, we've got food. We've got stuff stashed away. And if you let us live, we'll show you where it is. Well, that kind of stuff was scarce in that day, that time. So... Ishmael lets them live. We don't know whatever became of that, but we do know they didn't get put to death with uh, the 70 of their companions who did die. Uh, and we just read in 9 and following, I filled the cistern with the bodies of the slain, a rather gruesome image. And then kidnapping. Verse 10, he took captive all the rest of the people, king's daughters, the people there who committed to get Eliah under his, under his care, and uh, they, they leave. He leaves with all these people and heads for Ammon, takes off with the Ammonites. So you have this, this outburst of evil there, the assassination, the slaughter of 70 of those 80 men as pilgrims who came, and then the, the captivity, the taking captive, kidnapping the, the rest of the people there who were in Mizpah, and uh, they take off for, for Ammon with them. But it does end on something of, a, of, of good news. You have this rescue as Johanan and his men hear about what had happened, uh, kind of like the cavalry riding in to the, uh, the rescue. They took all their men, verse 12, and they went to fight against Ishmael. They came upon him at the great pool that's in Gibeon. don't want to take any time with that, but you can read about it in 2 Samuel 2, the battle there with Joab and Abner and their men at the pool in, uh, at Gibeon. And when all the people, that is the captives, see them coming, they rejoice, they start to flee, run back toward uh, Johanan, they're rescued, but verse 15, Ishmael gets away with eight men. Apparently two of them died or something happened to them in all of this. Uh, maybe in this battle, two of his men were killed. Uh, only eight men with him now as they take off for Ammon. But Johanan, his men, his, the, these people that he's rescued, all head back to Mizpah. But when they get there, they go to Geruth Shimham near Bethlehem intending to go to Egypt. And that kind of sets up the passages that follow uh, because of the Chaldeans. They were afraid, afraid of what would happen because uh, Babylon would not look on the assassination of their appointed governor with uh, much pleasure. They would be pretty incensed about that. And so they were afraid because of what happened. They struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. This naivete on the part of the governor, really put all this into play. That, that would have called for some hard decisions maybe to have had Ishmael taken out, but it might have spared a lot of other deaths had that happened. 
But you look at this, you just see this chaos. It almost reminds you of judges, you know, with the rescue and, the, and then the enemy coming in and the difficulties taking place. Chaos. Where's the Lord? Where's the word from the Lord? Where's the action of the Lord? Let me ask you this. Who else is missing here? Jeremiah. Where is the guy? Well, last we hear of him is back in verse 6. He went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. Why wasn't Jeremiah killed? He certainly had a pro-Babylonian message. He certainly seemed like a target for Ishmael to take out. Where was Jeremiah? We don't know. With God, I guess. The Lord was certainly looking after him, because then Jeremiah shows up after this. You see, this is something of a study of the providence of God. God was very much involved here, protecting Jeremiah, keeping his servants safe. But what about all of his other people? You know, as you study the scriptures, I like the way one person puts it. He said, some people experience God's marvelous providence, Jeremiah, who was delivered. Others experience God's mysterious providence, suffering violence, suffering death, suffering evil. It's all God's providence. And God never guarantees that every single one of his people is going to be preserved. But he does promise that his church as a whole will be preserved. You see, God still had a purpose for Jeremiah. In fact, a very important message coming up in the next few passages, as Lord willing, we'll look at as we get to them. But we do recognize the providence of God at work here in sparing Jeremiah. And the message for us is, even when things do look chaotic, and when God seems to be silent, never forget, God is still on his throne. He is still working out his purposes. He is still protecting, at least in this world, those whom he needs to protect, to see to the well-being of his people as a whole. But of course, in Christ Jesus, we're all safe. Even if we perish in this world, we are with the Lord, protected by the shed blood, the violence against God's own son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God. And Lord, sometimes we see you work in ways that just move us to praise you. And sometimes we see you work or appear even not to work in ways that leave us scratching our heads, as in this passage. But Father, we recognize that uh, you, you were at work even through the seeming chaos of desperate times and difficult situations. Father, increase our faith. Increase our faith to trust in your word, to trust in your goodness, even when the things going around might challenge that and cause us to question. And yet, Lord, as we read your word and as we see your providences in the world, in a long-range view, we recognize that you are, in fact, good. And we trust you, and we give thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.